Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, with Pastor John King. Thank you, everybody. Well, I'm glad you sang me happy birthday before this message started. No, kidding aside, thank you very much. And thank you, Margaret, for the, the nice uh, jib-jab. Jib, jab, jib-jab. We like it, but yes. Goodness gracious, okay. Now, fairly, I'm pretty well embarrassed, so. Um, shall we proceed? Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to cover verses 7 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 7 through 16. Last week we began chapter 4 with some essential groundwork as we started to examine our duty as Christians. Remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians is all doctrine and theology. And that's what all of our works are based on, solid doctrine and theology. But now we're going to start talking about our works and how we serve the Lord, our application, if you will. And we were challenged by Paul that we, are, we need to conduct our lives in a manner that could, God desires from us. And we were given an exhortation. He said to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And he started with the subject of Christian unity, and we're going to continue with that. But remember very quickly, what does Christian unity look like? Verse 2 says, when you serve, the characteristics of unity, it comes with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, completely gentle and humble, yet protecting the innocent and the truth of God. And that's just like Jesus Christ. That's just like our Lord. That's who he was, that's who he is, and that's who he's desiring for us to be. And of course, we learn that the source of Christian unity originates from the Trinity, you know, the God, the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. He said, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is above all and through all and in you all. These seven things are what all true believers share, regardless of where you live, regardless of what your age is. What denomination or non-denomination you come from, what your worship preference is. There are commonalities among the body of Christ. And that's why you can meet somebody from the other, you know, part of the earth, and if you can speak the same language and you're believers, you find a kinship with them right away. Because you share in those things. And so he says, he charges us to build Christian unity, and this is where we come in because it does take effort. I mean, you guys know me, okay? And I know you. It takes effort, doesn't it, to maintain Christian unity. And so he says we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we do it with a sense of urgency. This isn't a lazy endeavor. This is something that we need to be committed to and recognize. Recognize and love all other believers, true believers, by maintaining what God has already set in place. We're not the peacemakers, so to speak. God's already set that up. He's already given us unity. We can be peacemakers, yes, but he has created the unity. And so it's our job to maintain. So this week, we're going to continue uh, to, to look at this topic of unity. And it's really astonishing when you consider it, that what God desires from us, he desires to use you and I to reveal 
his wisdom. He desires to use you and I to reveal his power and, of course, his love. That's what God desires. We're his instruments to be used by him. And that's really amazing when we consider who we are apart from Christ. And the, re the way we do it is by doing the work of the ministry. Doing the work of the ministry. Now, last week, Paul drove home the fact that we're all one body. But remember, unity is not the same as uniformity. The church is also very diverse. Not only by our physical and personality characteristics, which you could say of all human race, right? But rather the special abilities that he gives to us. And these are called spiritual gifts. So today, we're going to talk about the spiritual gifts of leadership to the church. Let's look at our passage in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, But to each of you, excuse me, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he's measuring it out, okay? And he's giving. He's the giver and he's the one who measures it. Therefore, he said, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, verse 9 this ascent, he ascended, what, what does it mean? But that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speak the truth in love, and that we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this day and this time to set aside, Lord, to hear your word. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak through us, Lord, speak through me and speak to our hearts, Lord, that we may hear from you once again that we may be nourished, that we may be comforted, that we may be exhorted, that the, the, the gift of prophecy may flow among us right now, Lord God. Fill us with your spirit as we take in your word. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So, you know, last week, as we said, he's talking about how we're one and we maintain unity in the, in the church. But now we're talking about the church is also not only a unified body, but it's a unified body with diverse gifts. And in verses 7 through 10, he starts out, he says, but to each of you or each one of us, grace was given. Now, grace in this in this case, grace, what it means, it's our capacity and our ability due to the grace of God. It's our capacity and our ability. In the general sense, grace or charis, it's, it's a, like this merciful kindness of God that ultimately turned us to Christ for salvation. We think of that grace in that way often. And it's often stated in contrast to mercy. God's grace toward us means we're receiving what we don't deserve. 
okay? But God's mercy toward us is not receiving the punishment that we rightly deserve. But in this case, you know, we, we understand that as the basic and general understanding. But in this case, these, grace, these graces are, are how they determine the gifts. They're called grace gifts, if you will. And he's, he's pointing out, he points to a, uh, a spiritual condition of a Christian who is now governed by divine grace. And it's made visible by the spiritual gifts. I mean, that's how, you know, we, we talk about fruit in our lives. We talk about the giftings in our lives. Um, or to put it another way, Hughes says this, it's the ability to perform the task that God has called each of and every one of us to do. The ability to perform those tasks. And we do it by his grace. Now, aside from the list of spiritual giftings that we're going to look at today, you guys are probably aware that there's three other lists uh, Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 1, and 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. Those are other grace gifts, spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament. And in each one of those gifts, including this one, two things are made very, very clear. Spiritual gifts come from God, first of all, obvious, and there is at least one gift for every believer. Now, as we look at today's passage, we're going to see God as a conquering king, as one who gives the gifts. And sometimes we have a problem with spiritual gifts in the church. There's a lot of division over it. There's a lot of problems with it. But let's check our attitude. Because remember, the gifts were given by God himself, by the victory that he purchased. Okay, we can make up, we can have our arguments and our theological debates. Now, so far, we've seen that the spiritual gifts are for everyone in Christ. There are really no excuses and they're perfectly measured by Jesus. So we all, again, have a special part to perform. In verse 8, he, he says, therefore. In other words, therefore, he says, and, he, and what he's saying is, that is why the scripture says what he's about to say. That is why he's going to quote from a, an Old Testament scripture. He says, therefore, having ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts, gifts to men. So having established that the gifts come from God, now he's going to point to, or excuse me, having established that the gifts are for every believer, he's going to point to the origin of the gifts, the spectacular origin. Now Paul is quoting from Psalm 68 verse 18, which we read a portion of that today. And just for the quick context, this particular portion of Psalm 68 describes God defeating evil at Mount Bashan. Mount Bashan represented the gateway of the underworld in Israelite and Canaanite thought. And so Paul quotes the psalm to express Christ's victory over all evil powers. So when you read what he says, Psalm 68, it says, you have ascended on high, you led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men. In ancient times, when a king's army defeated another foe, the military captives would be paraded in public. And the defeated people would then pay tribute to the victors right there in a public setting. It was a common practice. And so when he says he gave gifts to men, you go, okay, I, I get that. He, you know, if you're reading Psalm 68, 18, in the original way it was written in the Old Testament, it makes sense. He's the victor, and he receives the gifts from those he's, the foes he's defeated. 
But when we read it today in the New Testament, it says, and he gave gifts from men. He gave gifts to men, excuse me. So Paul changed the verbiage a little bit. So Paul here adapts the phrase received gifts from men and he inserts gave gifts from men. Why? Why did he do that? Well, you know, it's just like you and I, you'd be thinking of describing something. Now Paul was, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he was still a man. And oftentimes we'll see something and you go, that reminds me of this. And we give an illustration based on it. And so he's giving an illustration based from Psalm 68. Paul was a scholar. He was a very highly educated, originally, you know, he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he knew the scriptures very well. And so he inserts gave gifts to men. And what he's wanting to do is to describe Christ as giving spiritual gifts to the church. That's exactly what he's, he's doing here. Now, in addition to military victors receiving tribute or plunder from those who are defeated, they would also share the plunder with their countrymen. They would share what they had won, you know, from the, from the war, the spoils of the war, with their own soldiers and their own countrymen. And who are we? We're, we're soldiers for Christ. And so the gifts that are coming to us, and Paul is using this illustration, he wants us to understand that when Jesus won the victory at Calvary, you know, not, did he, not only did he secure our souls for all of eternity, if you've accepted Jesus, you know, his blood washes us of our sin, but he also shares the victory with us through spiritual gifts. You see, he came to destroy the works of the devil, and that's precisely what he's doing and what he has done. Now we're going to see in verse 9, interesting passage again, Paul's going to add some more detail to how Jesus attained this victory. It says, now this... He ascended, quoting, Paul comments, or begins to comment by asking sort of a rhetorical question. He says, what does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And then, of course, we're thankful that in verse 10, he provides us with an answer. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens. In his majesty and his exaltations. And then it says, that he might fill all things. Recall from verse 1 and uh, verses 22 and 23. We don't have a slide for that. It says, and Jesus, he will put all things under his feet. God will put all things under Jesus' feet and give him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our Lord in his majesty fills the heavens. All things in all places. So let's talk a little bit more about verses 9 and 10. Only because there is some interesting uh, different viewpoints on those. I'm just going to give them to you very quickly. There's, there's three basic ways these verses are interpreted by the church. By commentators and scholars. The first way is that Christ descended into the underworld in connection with his death and spent time in the grave. It was, you know, we know he was in the grave for three days. But then there's the teaching, and it's, it's quoted, uh, he who also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now this is seen by some as a reference to per, 1 Peter 3.19. I'm going to tell you up front, I don't see it that way, but that doesn't mean that 1 Peter 3.19 is not true. It's just not what he's talking about today. We see at 1 Peter 3.19, by whom he also went, Jesus, and preached to the spirits in prison 
And then we over, go over to for, uh, chapter 4 of 1 Peter 4, 6. For this reason, this gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men or to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. There are no slides for those verses if you're taking notes, but that's one view. But that's, that, is, that is a true thing that happened, but that's not what we're talking about today. The second thing that we saw is that this particular descent is being referred to could be the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You know, we had Acts 2-4 where the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So that's another view of it. And then you have the view that I hold and I agree with is the descent that we're talking about in today's passage refers to Jesus' incarnation. The fact that he humbled himself. When the word Jesus became flesh, and we see that in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hughes writes this. He says, Paul, in this, in this particular passage, having looked at all three that we've already seen, Paul is simply borrowing the imagery of Psalm 68 and applying it to Christ's incarnation and his ascension. The fact that he ascended implies that he already descended and in the incarnation to the lower earthly regions, the lower parts of the earth. It's another way of indicating the humility of Jesus in coming down setting aside some of his godly attributes, the ability to be omnipresent and coming in, humil in humility to the earth and, and becoming, you know, as a child into this earth in the flesh. His descent to earth meant that he set aside the independent exercise of his attributes, like we said, submitting the exercise of them to the Father's will, and he went down, 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 in the incarnation, and then he went even further down in his death, actually becoming sin for us. But then he burst up in exaltation so that he now fills the whole universe as a conquering king and joyously lavishes gifts upon his children. He bestows abundant gifts to his church and gives his people the power to fulfill their gifts. Jesus came to achieve victory over sin and death man's two greatest enemies because they result in alienation and separation from God. So when we talk about spiritual gifts and maybe we've had a bad teaching on them or maybe we've been in a place where spiritual gifts have been abused, you need to put that aside and recognize that those gifts came at a great price. Our Lord and Savior, he went on a cross again, as I said. He died for our sins, but he also rose again in power and majesty and he wants to share that with you your spiritual gift. So that's just, you know, we're not going to go on a topical study of weeks of talking about spiritual gifts. We're not going to offer you a special test to take. Seek the Lord. People will, if you have a gift, a spiritual gift, you will be, it will be affirmed in the church and you will know it. Read the Bible. See, Christ has gone to war on behalf of us and he's conquered all enemies that make life useless and meaningless. And now he gives us the greatest gift of all, the gift of meaning, purpose, and significance in life. 
Now we're going to shift over to our next section. It's, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts of leadership. We're not going to talk about all the other spiritual gifts today. We're going to talk about four primary spiritual gifts of leadership. Paul has communicated with all believers, or that all believers, have supernatural gifts from God, and that their value is nothing short of his marvelous grace. Now he will give a short list of spiritual gifts that pertain to the leadership in the church and the goal of these particular gifts. Look at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Remember, he's the conquering king, and he gets to give out the gifts, okay? He gets to distribute the gifts. And he starts with the apostles. Now, the word apostle means a delegate or a messenger or one sent forth with orders. You had the 12, you know, uh, Judas, minus Judas, plus Matthias, and then Paul. You have other named apostles who were foundational to the establishment of the church. They had to meet certain criteria. They had to be appointed by Christ. They had to have seen him after his resurrection and received knowledge of the gospel by direct revelation. They wrote letters and books of the New Testament that were made infallible by the gift of inspiration. You see, the office of apostle is a past thing, but not the gifts, not the giftings. Now, some in church today, some in today's church and in certain cults among us, see this as the gift of apostle as a continued office. Others prefer to see it not as an office, or a position, but as a spiritual gifting and ministry in the work of missions and church planting. Pioneer work. You guys are familiar with one of our missionaries, John Lutz and Yvonne. He's a pioneer missionary. He goes to places where the gospel has either been totally wiped out or has never been heard or is under extreme oppression. He has a message to bring, and if you follow his emails, you'll see that he does the work of an apostle. He has the gift of an apostle, even though he doesn't have the office and he would never claim it. Those are things that are happening today all around the world through many people. He next says, we says he says, now some apostles and some prophets. Who's a, what's a prophet? Well, somebody who speaks on behalf of someone else. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of someone else. Old Testament prophets were used by God to communicate his words to the people concerning moral, doctrinal, or prophetic future events. Men such as Moses and Jeremiah or Samuel, women such as Deborah or Miriam, true prophets spoke by inspiration. False prophets spoke by their own imagination. New Testament prophets were like the early apostles, or like the early apostles, I should say, they were foundational to the establishment of the church. We saw that in Ephesians 1.20. And they received the mystery of the church, which we talked about in chapter 3, you know, where other ages, this mystery of the church was not made known to the sons of men, but it's now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, as you see in Ephesians 3.5. Early church had men like Agabus, women like the daughters of Philip. You see it all through the book of Acts, chapters 11 and 13 and 21. Today we see a similar situation as with the apostles. The office of prophet has ceased, but not the gifting, not the gift of prophecy. 
the gifting of speaking prophetically is occasional rather than full-time as with the Old Testament prophets. The gift of prophecy is listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4.11. Not everybody in the church agrees with the, you know, all the gifts, all the signed gifts being available for this day. Uh, some people are cessationists in that, uh, in that instance. We are continuists here at Calvary Chapel. We believe that the gifts are for today. But we're talking about these original leadership gifts in the office of apostle and prophet, which were, are a thing of the past. The office, that is. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, it says, We are to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. But he also gives us some guidelines as to how this gift functions. If somebody tells you that they're a prophet and they have a word of a prophetic word from the Lord, then you should see verse 3 of uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Notice it says, He who prophesies speaks three things, edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. So when somebody prophesies to you, you receive it, if you receive it, you will be built up, you will be encouraged, and you will be strengthened. You're not going to be torn down. You're not going to be you know, scared. You're not going to be weakened in your faith. That's not prophecy in the New Testament sense of the word. And this is often manifest in the preaching of God's word. Uh, you know, when, when if, if I'm being led by the spirit or whoever's up here is being led by the spirit and, and preaching God's word, just unpacking God's word, nothing special, but the word, prophetic word goes out from the word of God. And you guys know it to be true. I'm not claiming to be a prophet. Now he says, some evangelists. Now evangelist is one who brings good tidings. Somebody who's got a message and they bring good tidings. Or bearers of the good news. One writer put it this way. Today, evangelists are the obstetricians of the church. They are those gifted in bringing new births. Evangelists often travel from place to place to preach the gospel, from Philip who preached to the Ethiopian in Acts 8, right up to our present day, men like Billy Graham, Louis Palau, Pastor Greg Laurie. They are gifted at making the gospel plain to the lost and helping fearful people share their faith. Men like Ray Comfort, and they teach you how to share your faith. You know, only about 2% of the church, it's said, uh, actually shares their faith with people, you know, especially with strangers. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Now, not all Christians are called or spiritually gifted in evangelism. All Christians do have a mandate, however, from Jesus to participate in the furthering of the gospel message. You could be raising godly children, supporting missions, witnessing to your neighbors and co-workers, you know, right here in our fellowship, we have an opportunity for you to participate in a local after-school program. Every Monday during the school year, Good News Club meets with Miss Grace and Miss Trish over there, and they need volunteers, they need financial support, they need lots of prayer as <laughs> we continue. But they're actually growing, and the, and the fear, the concern that they have is that they don't have enough people to help them. And so they have to limit the amount of kids that can come and hear the gospel in this after-school program. 
They're not going to be able to handle all the ones that are likely to come if they continue to grow. And so I'm, I'm asking you as, a, as your pastor, if you have time, if you're interested in the Good News Club and Child Evangelism Fellowship, please pray about it and please speak with Miss Grace or Miss Trish about it because they do need your help. Okay? Amen? Next, we see the fourth gift that says some pastors and teachers you say, wait a minute, no, that's, you missed one. That should be five. No, pastors and teachers uh, is, in, in the Greek context, it's actually a combination of gifts. One office with two ministries. The pastor is a shepherd. First Peter 5, 2. He's called poimon or shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So one of the ministries of a pastor is to be a shepherd and also to be a teacher. This is the work um, of feeding the sheep, okay? As the shepherd, the work of feeding the sheep, and it has to have a top priority for the pastor, pastor-teacher. And how do they feed the sheep? Obviously, by preaching God's word. Amen. Preaching God's word. So that's the list, verse 11, but verse 12 tells us the purpose, the purpose for these gifts, these leadership gifts. It says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. You see, all these leadership gifts aren't, aren't to give people a platform and give them fame. No, it's to equip you, you guys, for the work of the ministry. This is often revered, referred to as evangelism of the church. To be equipped is to be fit and prepared fully for something. And in this case, it's the work of the ministry. Serving others. Raising godly families again. Teaching kids church. Leading Bible studies. Being a deacon or a greeter. Being on a music team or tech ministry. Being a, serving as a board member. And the list could go on and on. And why? For the edifying of the body of Christ. The edifying of the body of Christ. What is edifying? That's simply to be built up, to be strengthened as a body of believers. You know, this, this wonderful mystery of the church that's been revealed, that we've known, but it was new at that time when Paul preached it. And this building up happens through prayer. It happens through fellowship, practical needs, encouragement of others, and of course, discipleship. Again, equipping and edifying the body of Christ is the main reason that I come up here every Sunday and Wednesday night. Equipping and edifying the body of Christ is the main reason that you volunteer to serve in our church. That's the whole reason that you do it, to serve the Lord and to equip and strengthen us as a church. It's not primarily to build a media platform, to sell a ton of books, or make a big splash on every talk show. God can and does use these things. But the primary call is right here in the local church. But the bottom line for every single believer, and if you count yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ, is that because Jesus has given you at least one spiritual gift, you should be involved in some kind of ministry. You should be involved in some kind. And I'm not going to tell you what that is. You may want to ask me. You may want to ask me where the needs are. You may want to ask me, 
hey, Pastor John, or somebody in leadership, or somebody you know here at the church, a husband or wife, hey, how do you think I could be gifted to serve in church? How can I be gifted to build up this church that I love so much, these people that I love? We've talked about serving in church. We also see a need for serving the homeless, unwed mothers, visiting nursing homes, being a pro-life witness, battling the spread of human trafficking and, and pornography, and participating, yes, in the political process. All those things God has gifted you to do, both in the church and to a large extent, or to a certain extent in any event, outside of the church. And what's the reason? You know, we, we understand why we have the leadership gifts. We understand why they exist, and that's to build you up and to strengthen you. But look at God's goal. You see, God's got a, a goal in mind, and that is maturity in Christ, verses 13 through 16. When pastors adhere to their calling and God's people are prepared and active for service, you will have unity and maturity both individually and corporately. Notice he says it's a work in progress, verse 13, till, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. You see, God has a divinely appointed goal in mind. Till we all come. Paul's teaching that it is possible for a church to grow together but we are hopefully a work in progress because a church can also regress. A church can also go in, a, in the wrong direction. But we, you know, that's part of our forbearing and being patient with one another, one another. Some of you may have a certain gift and you desire that others would share in that gifting and that ministry. But you can get to the point where you're not patient enough with others who don't share your gift where you can be causing a lot of problem and make people feel you know, it's, I don't want to say hurt people's feelings, but you can certainly impose the gift that's given on you. You can project it onto others that don't have it and cause problems. So we need to be kind. We need to be prayerful and mindful. But it is possible and it will happen when you and I are obedient to his calling and his gifting. He says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, this, you know, this is where the, the goal is. And it's a grand goal. It's a grand usage of, of verbs and nouns and, you know, synonyms here. Schaefer writes this. He says, there is no thought here of perfecting individual men. It is rather the completion of that body, the church, which must attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a body. It's a body of believers. He goes on to point out that the biblical reference concerning the fullness of the Gentiles, which is in Romans 11.25, until this is completed, it keeps national Israel in a temporary state of blindness. Now, God is the only one who knows when the time will come, when Jesus will return to rapture his church. God's the only one who knows that, the Father. But the, where it's, what's, what's being hinted at here is if we were more unified as a church around the globe, maybe his coming would be sooner than later. Who knows? The point here is that the church and its spiritual growth is being looked at collectively, 
There's not a bunch of individual Rambos. An individual, you know, I don't need the church. I got my own thing. I do my own thing. That's not what the Bible says about being a part of the church. Warren Wiersbe told a funny story. You may have heard this before. He, he tells a story. A freelance missionary visited a pastor friend of mine asking for financial support. And the pastor asked, he says, well, what group are you associated with? His friend asked. And the man replied, oh, I belong to the invisible church. I belong to the invisible church. And he says, well, my friend then asked, well, what church are you a member of? Again, he got the answer, oh, I belong to the invisible church. Getting a bit suspicious, my friend asked, when does this invisible church meet? You know, you're an invisible church, when do you meet? And who pastors it? You know, honest, good questions. The missionary then became incensed and said, well, your church here isn't the true church. I belong to the invisible church. To which his friend replied, well, Here's some invisible money to help you minister to the invisible church. He goes on to say, My pastor friend was not denying the existence of one body. Rather, he was affirming the fact that the invisible church, which is not a biblical term, ministers through what? The visible church. The visible church. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You're not running from one Christian fad to another. We should no longer be children. It is possible for a church to remain in an immature state. How do we know? Hebrews 5.12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. He's telling them that every single one of them needs to go be a part of kids' church for a while. Until they can learn the basics. In other words, he's trying to encourage us to move forward. Why? Because of the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. There's always going to be deceivers with clever sounding words and new ideas. We got a new way to do ministry here. I don't think so. And I'm not saying not thinking outside the box. I'm not saying that there's another way. There are many ways to teach the truth. There are many ways to teach the truth. So we're talking about biblical church growth. Growth. There are a lot of ministry models and philosophies, and some of them don't like the idea of accountability or loving confrontation which you see in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head. To speak the truth means to deal faithfully or truly with anyone. You know, we need, it's not loving to overlook something that's glaringly obvious in the life of a brother or sister. It's not loving not to gently and with love confront that. And the reason is that they may grow up and that all things in him who is the Christ to mature. In other words, to mature and to grow fruit. This uh, one writer said that this carries the idea of not only speaking the truth, but doing it. Doing the truth. And this is the medium, he says, which growth is maximized. Because what it does is when truth and love are married together, then the Spirit is free to do His work 
and the result is wonderful. Verse 16, from the whole body joined and knit together that every joint supplies. I mean, this, all, this really speaks for itself. According to the effective working which every part does its share. And what does it do? It causes growth for the body and for edifying of itself in love. So well, as we conclude, when the subject of where you attend church comes up with our friends or our acquaintances, or even with other believers. There's often a series of one-liners that you've heard before. Hey, are you growing? Is there any drama? Are your, are your people witnessing and serving the community? And, you know, those are, those are great questions. But let me offer you four principles that should be the basis for your answer to those types of questions. In other words, where should we be growing? as we've talked about. The one thing is in leadership. You need leadership that's gifted for service by teaching the word of God by the spirit of God. So, you know, you could say, well, we, we, we teach the word of God. We have spiritual, we have leadership that God is gifted to teach the word of God. The next thing you could say is discipleship. The people of your church are being equipped and prepared for works of service Finding and using their gifts. Now, we're a small church, and so discipleship tends to happen a little bit more organically than a large church. A large church has to have discipleship programs because they don't know everybody. <laughs> so they got to get a set program going on. And we're not a, Calvary Chapel is not a program type church. So it's one of those things where we expect you to understand the Word of God and work together. Maturity. There should be a progressive maturing in the church. In other words, when there's fruit on somebody's life, when there's a breakthrough, if you will, in somebody's life, and you're starting to see them grow in the Lord, you know what? You benefit from that. We all benefit from that. There should be maturity. Everyone benefits when there's fruit in your life. Trust me. You guys know it. And then finally, speaking the truth in love. We should be honest and transparent. Not trying to play church. Not putting on a mask. Trying to fake each other out. Those are the things we shouldn't be doing. So leadership, discipleship, maturity, and truth in love. That's what your church should be all about. Corporate maturity is God's goal. So the question is for all of us, are you ready to continue to stay on board or get on board with his plans? That should be what your desire is. You should want to seek the Lord and ask him, Lord, how can I serve? How can I what can I do? What are, what are my spiritual gifts, Lord? Read the passages. Ask people. Ask those close to you that you trust. Amen? Amen. Well, this is a good term, time to begin and, and prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Uh, keep in mind that what we're about to do in, in uh, taking communion together is it's another visible sign of our unity. And so as we prepare our hearts, just you know, uh, as we begin to, to dim the lights and prepare our hearts, uh, maybe we should just be in a, a, a posture of prayer for a few moments and just bow your head before the Lord. And, you know, we know, Father, that uh, your desire is for us to be right with you and to be right with others. And, uh, Lord, we, we know that it would be appropriate for us to set aside this few moments now to examine our hearts. 
and to understand, you know, if there's anything between us and you that needs to be settled, if there's any sin or for harboring any anger or ill will towards another person, a, a person perhaps even here in our church today, if there's strife, if there's a secret sin that you need to for, be asked forgiveness for, Lord, we know that you're here for us. We know that you will always respond to a contrite heart when we come before you. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would soften our hearts now as we begin to take communion together. And I would just say, um, you know, as a, as a pastor and as, as a, one who is called by the Lord to oversee this particular church, if you can't come to grips with the thing that you're dealing with, whether it's anger, whether it's a sin in your life or, or something that you just cannot resolve in this short period of time, um, it would be appropriate that you not take communion this today. Uh, the, the word warns us against doing that. But that doesn't mean you have to come to God to come to the communion table with somebody of, uh, you know, in your own heart, like you're perfect or anything. No, he's the one that cleanses us. He's the one that forgives us. And he will forgive us. He will, he will take you by the hand and he will lead you all throughout life, all through the ups and downs and all the problems that you may encounter. Life will not always be easy. We know that by experience. But life with you is always going to be good. And we'll always experience your faithfulness if we will put our trust in you. And so we know that, Lord. And so as we come to the communion table, Lord, we just simply ask that you would go before us, that you would draw us into the fellowship that you set aside. This is what you desire, Lord God. You desire us to be together as a body, as a body of local believers. You desire for us to take of the bread and to drink of the juice as a remembrance to the great sacrifice that you laid before us, that you made a way for us to have fellowship with you. So help us, Lord. As James continues to strum the guitar, I would ask that... Um, Again, when you're ready, you can come up and take communion and return to your seats, and then we'll take communion together. And you may cut, when you return to your seats, you can sit down. You don't have to stand. We'll take communion together.
time in his hands for his throne it shall remain and never stand all the power all the glory I will trust in his name for my God is the ancient of days though the dread of overwhelms my soul he is here with me I am not alone oh his love is sure and he knows my name for my God is the ancient of days none above him none before him all of time in his hands for his throne it shall remain and never stand all the power all the glory our trust in his name for my God is the ancient of What the future brings I will watch and wait For the Savior King Then my joy complete Standing face to face In the presence of the ancient of day First Corinthians ten, sixteen, and seventeen. Questions asked. The cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, 
for we all partake of that one bread. Lord, we thank you for your body on the cross suffered for us that we might have eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for your great sacrifice as we take the bread in remembrance of you. as we hold the cup which represents a new covenant your blood shed for us a new covenant with God that you paid the price that you again made a way for our salvation and our eternal life with you we remember that today that great sacrifice as you've called us to and we give you thanks Stand and close with one more chorus. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his bonus shall remain and never stand. All the power, all the glory, our trust in. Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.